Right now, it's uh, 78 degrees. So, uh, we're right, well, this interview is now over. over. <laughs> You're officially canceled by us. You're down. The entire us. South just canceled yeah. you. <laughs> I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co workers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up and then talk about the current events of this week. And then later on the pod, we sat down with Reverend Travis Norvell and talk about his brand new book that is talking about church on the move. This is a great episode, so you want to stay tuned. Hey friends, Missy here. Today is Mitch's birthday. He's turning... Never mind. Help us celebrate by making a tax-deductible contribution to Good Faith Media at goodfaithmedia.org. Happy birthday, Mitch. Missy, it's good to see you back. I wasn't sure if you were going to make it back uh, after last week. Hey, boss. <laughs> it's been um, questionable up to this very moment. <laughs> Are you, are you thinking about belling like right now? Maybe, <laughs> except it's your birthday. It is. Happy birthday. Well, thank you so much. And hey, I brought you something. Oh boy. I can't wait Hang to on. see what it is. And she takes her headphones off and she walks through the door and she's got, oh, she's got presents. I cannot wait to see what this is. Oh my goodness. All right. So there's this bag. Your wrapping is just stellar. Well, trash bags <laughs> work for Trash bag. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's a frame with photos of birds. Everybody knows that I'm a bird lover. And then there's my dear, lovely wife in the middle of it giving me the bird. <laughs> it's the birds of Dornick Lane. <laughs> that is fabulous. Well, I cannot wait to hang that in the bathroom. That's going to be great. <laughs> so... Related, uh, you want to know how our little weekly podcast almost turned into a true crime podcast this week? Oh, please tell me. Okay. And you know, I have to preface, I'm not capable of telling a short story. Well, that's true. So, so set back, ladies and strap, gentlemen. Yeah. Get your seatbelt on. So we recently um, have, you know, because we've become empty nesters, we're rearranging our house. You have relocated your office to our what used to be our upstairs right. playroom, video game room, kid room, all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. And I will say, you nest like a woman who is 41 <laughs> weeks pregnant. Yes, I do. You nest and you nest well and with passion. Uh-huh. So at the end of last week, after a couple of nights of a post-COVID insomnia that I'd been suffering, mm -hmm. I was exhausted and you had even come downstairs a couple of times that day and basically said, Hey, you look like, mm -hmm. you know, go lay down. Right. Yeah. So it was probably, you know, four, four 30 on <laughs> a Friday <laughs> and I finally just was a zombie. We had plans that night. I knew we'd be out late. I texted you and said, Hey, I, I am going to go lay down, which I don't ever go go to the no. bedroom in the middle of the day to lay down. I right. was that tired. Sure. So I get to the bedroom. I lay down in bed. And I mean, that perfect afternoon nap point of drifting off to sleep. 
and then the hammering starts. <laughs> hey, I had a few. Had and a few. you were not, I kid you not, <laughs> hanging something on the wall that is directly above my pillow. And at that moment, I had a decision to make. Yeah. The decision was to deal with it right then or save it for the pod <laughs> and let the listeners understand. Oh my gosh. What happened? So yeah. that's the moment that our little pod almost became a true crime podcast, <laughs> in which case the ratings would have skyrocketed. Skyrocketed, absolutely. So, well, I, I apologize. Yeah. Uh, well, with that, happy birthday. You made it to another birthday. I think that is basically the, the end of this story. You uh, you made it, and uh, we'll see where we go from here. Yeah. So happy birthday. We're well, going to go to dinner tonight and do some shopping. Um, so yeah. that'll be fun. Yeah, it is going to be fun. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, let's turn to the news uh, this week and uh, lots going on in the world of news. First of all, uh, former President Donald Trump uh, got a knock on the door down at Mar-a-Lago. This well, week. depending on if you ask him, it wasn't a knock on the door. <laughs> it was like, you know, a thousand FBI agents bursting through with, with guns and sirens and things like that. So. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, uh, quite remarkable. Apparently, the FBI uh, uh, executed a search warrant, uh, searched the house. Uh, seems like they're looking for documents uh, that he actually took from the White House, some of those classified, and still not knowing exactly what the, the DOJ is investigating, but certainly investigating something. It's unprecedented that a former president's... Uh, House was searched, but uh, it was going to be interesting to see what happens. But you had you had an interesting take on this because we the only reason we know about this is because of Trump himself, right? I and I don't know that this is unique, and I know the the news stations have been talking about this ad nauseum. So how much you know people want to hear us talk about it is is up for question. But I just it's it's just another example of who gets to decide the messaging. Um, and according to Trump, which he went out there and and, and if you're Trump, this was genius. He went out there to his you know, fans, his, his supporters and said, they're raiding my house. And so lo and behold, that's the language everyone's using. And I'm going to call you out because sure. the email you sent me with topics said raid. Yeah. And so in reading it, it was an FBI search and to do an FBI search, there are certain processes set in place and certain um, things that have to be done. And, and likely this, this was, uh, you know, approved by judges and, and other organizations. And it was a search. They let the secret service know they went and knocked on the door and went into the house. Um, Trump wasn't even there. Um, so I think it just speaks again to messaging and who gets to control the narrative. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately it's another example where the squeaky wheel, the loud mouth, the bully, whatever you want to call it is getting to drive the story that's being told. So I, I don't know what will, will come of it. Nobody knows exactly what they were looking for. Um, but I, it's yeah. just frustrating again to see somebody else right. getting it to control and, the narrative. And you're absolutely right. There's been a lot of frustration by some people, uh, in the media, people, um, talking about why isn't the FBI saying anything? Why isn't the DOJ saying anything? Uh, legal scholars say they're doing exactly what they should be doing. And that's not saying a word. They're treating this case like any other case. Uh, they call it the Comey effect. And I remember James Comey, made comments about their investigation of Hillary Clinton and her misplaced emails. When he did that, it changed the, the tone, the tenor of the investigation. It caused mayhem there at the end of the that presidential election cycle. 
And they say they learned a lot from that, that you just don't say anything. But when you don't say anything, you get you let the other person control the narrative. And that's right. exactly what he's doing. Right. I mean, I'm all for controlling the narrative, you know, when it's me. Yeah, just like you did about the hammer and right. the nails. <laughs> it's good for me and not for thee. Right. I mean, true. that's marriage 101, yeah, right? That's absolutely okay. right. That's absolutely right. Let's so, just make that clear. Uh, well, speaking uh, of an inability to control the message, Alex Jones from InfoWars Friends, <laughs> friends, have we not learned? Do not put things in text message that you don't want splayed all over the internet. Seriously. Yeah. I know I'm not a young spry folk, but I am young enough or smart enough to know when you put something in a text, you just need to assume the world is going to read it. Uh, it was a startling moment in open court when Jones is testifying in the civil litigation. Uh, the Sandy, uh, Sandy Hook uh, parents have sued him for defamation and slander, and uh, the verdict was rendered um, for... $4 million initially, and then punitive damages of somewhere around $45 million, I think, total. But at any rate, there's this moment in the trial where the, uh, the, family's, um, the family's lawyer reveals to Jones that his counsel sent them all of his text messages for years and years. And you could see the shock on his face at open court. If there's one takeaway from this is that, you know, seriously, we, we, I think we've become, um, I, I, I don't know. We, we, we think that what we write, you know, online or what we send in a text or an email is private. And at the end of the day, it's not, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, for the case, standpoint that that they have this information um but well the fine. verdict was uh, was remarkable it was i think it was um you know justice was served uh we're going to see because texas state law uh, puts a cap on civil lawsuits that is $750,000 a lot of people think that the family will appeal that decision take it to the texas supreme court and hopefully be ruled unconstitutional and they'll get every penny of that money from Jones. So, uh, our hearts still go out to the families that they had to relive this again. Uh, well, something else happened that was kind of strange coming out of Texas again and Texas. Oh, Texas. Um, there was a church down in Texas that decided they were going to replicate the musical Hamilton. Okay. I've seen a lot of church productions. (laughs) I can tell you right now, any church production of Hamilton. <laughs> you ever seen that gif of a train wreck? <laughs> yeah, choo-choo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm imagining, uh, but go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, apparently uh, the producers of Hamil- Hamilton uh, have not licensed it for use in churches or schools as of yet. Uh, and so they basically were... Uh, doing this illegally, but not only were they replicating the musical itself, they changed some of it, Missy. That's what I hear, and I do not pretend to be any on any level knowledgeable at licensing agreements and copyrights. I do remember many a discussion in a church business meeting about such things or mm-hmm. committee meetings yeah. when you're when you're doing productions, but I I don't know anything. What stood out to me is the way they adapted 
the musical and uh, the article I read, uh, I think it was from CNN, says there's a clip that they take where uh, Hamilton is struggling and another character comes and tells him that, quote, God is the only one that can help you right now. And then another clip, Eliza sings to Hamilton, my hope is in Jesus. If you could just give him a chance today, that would be enough. Uh, and it just, again, back to what we were saying earlier about who controls yeah. the message, let me think, we have a huge responsibility in life to right. um, not try to adapt the history or retellings to suit our needs. And I, I just wondered if you could speak a little bit to the fact that this plays into what a, a lot of the narrative is these days that the founding fathers and in the founding of this country were based on what we know today as evangelical, you know, Christian roots. And it's just simply not true. This was not who the founding fathers were. And this was not the message that they were trying to instill in our country's history. And I just thought maybe for a majority of our viewers who this is, you know, something well known, but for anyone else, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, you're so astute in bringing this to our attention yeah. because <laughs> because um, there is a concerted effort right now, more so than there has in the recent past, to promote this idea of Christian nationalism. We have politicians such as Marjorie Greene uh, and others who are openly embracing the term Christian nationalism uh, and trying to push their political agenda that they claim is rooted in faith and scripture upon the American people. In order for them to be successful, they must create an origin story. And that origin story is found in the uh, pilgrims who came over here, as well as the founding fathers, that this country was created, it was always meant to be a Christian nation. Uh, and and be governed by Christian principles. Now, there's no disputing the fact that those who came here from England and other parts of Europe and the Founding Fathers, they were people of faith, and many of them were Christian, but also many of them were deist, and they were in Explain no... Explain a deist, Mitch. A deist is that there is a deep-seated belief that there is a God, and that God demonstrates providence over all of humankind. That it's not, they're, they're monotheists, they believe in God, uh, they, they believe in Jesus, not certain if he is divine, a lot of them would deny his divinity, but there is a strong sense of God's providence in the world, that God is orchestrating human history and has a hand in it. And therefore, they appeal uh, for that. There's no doubt that George Washington was a deist and other founding fathers as well. Uh, probably even lumped Jefferson into that. Uh, Jefferson, the famous Jeffersonian Bible, uh, he cuts out all the miracles uh, of Jesus and even some of the sayings that, that he didn't like. He and cut isn't them out. that still the one they swear on? Jefferson Bible, you can get choose who you want to uh, to swear on, but yeah, there's you can choose the Jefferson Bible to, to be sworn in to office. But at any rate, um, 
they must create a new origin story. And in order to do that, they're reconstructing history. Right. We have seen this for decades now. Uh, David Barton uh, down in Texas. Again, all these things happen in Texas. <laughs> down in Texas. Uh, hey, one great thing came out of Texas. Oh, that's right. You're a Texan. So <laughs> I have to be nice. But Barton was paramount in reconstructing this origin story and claiming that the founding fathers were evangelicals. And he would take their writings, their sayings out of context. He would totally recreate a narrative that attempted to put this country as a Christian nation. And it was, it's totally false. I mean, it's just, it's totally false. Um, Because if you read the totality of what the founding fathers wrote, they believed the only way for religion to succeed in America was to keep church and state separate. And that is what religious liberty is about. It is about enabling people to worship and practice their faith as their conscience dictates, but it does not give them permission to uh, oppress or to uh, for them to overlay their faith and make me follow their faith. Right. They have the right to believe that and to practice it, but I don't. It's in very practical terms, um, like we've talked about, I think even last week, uh, about the abortion issue. If you believe that abortion is a sin and abortion is murder, you have the right to believe that in this country. And if you end up pregnant, don't get an abortion. But there are other people in this country who do not believe that, and there's other religious uh, beliefs that believe that abortion is a safe uh, medical procedure to uh, to engage in, and because of their faith, they should have the right to 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 an abortion. And so, those are the kind of tensions that we find uh, in society today. But it goes back to this this attempt by religious and political fundamentalists on the right to push their narrow, oppressive, rigid agenda on America by creating a new origin story. And I'm here to tell you that origin story is false. I love that uh, origin story analogy used because as as a, a person of faith, um, as we are, um, we embrace and hold to our faith, but also understand that it is not for us to push on someone else or to force a, a governing body to to use that to as a means of of control right. and as a means of power and as a means of financial gain. And that's what we just we're seeing so much. And so I'm I'm glad you spoke to that. Hopefully that gave our listeners a little nugget of of background um, and history. Well, we got to sit down with a gentleman who was just quite the delight this week, Reverend Travis Norville from uh, Judson Memorial Baptist Church and United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. He's got a new book out entitled Church on the Move, A Practical Guide for Ministry and Community, and we just had a delightful time with him. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. I really loved his message, and I really loved it when I first saw the book and thought, oh, uh, giving giving up your car, this is so random. How can you write a book about that? It was lovely. I just really appreciated him kind of taking it back to basics and just remembering that face-to-face interaction, actually being in presence with people is so important and and so necessary in order to do good and and social justice and ministering to your communities. Well, stay tuned. Uh, Missy and I sat down with Travis Norville. And before we go to break, 
Thanks for the birthday gift. Yeah, it was happy wonderful. Birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from the Twin Cities. Reverend G. Travis Norvell is the pastor of Judson Memorial Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and an adjunct faculty member at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. He has served as an American Baptist pastor for 22 years in both small towns and urban churches. He is passionate about the social gospel in the local church as the link for both social justice and church renewal. Earlier this year, Reverend Norvell released his book, Church on the Move, a practical guide for ministry in the community. Reverend Norvell, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Well, thanks for the invitation. Great to be here with you all. Yeah. yeah how are things up in the Twin Cities? I, I'm sure it's a lot cooler up there. Hey, I need to know your temperature reading. This That's morning. exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah, you know, right now it's uh, 78 degrees. So, uh, right, well, this interview is now over. over. <laughs> You're officially canceled by us. You're down. The below. entire South just canceled yeah. you. <laughs> have not seen anything Understood. below 100 in a while. So. Oh, gosh. Do you have a guest room, Travis? <laughs> <laughs> well, how's the church? Uh, Judson Memorial uh, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, are you back in full swing? Uh, uh, we're probably about half swing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it feels like we've got maybe about half the congregation has uh, returned to in-person, um, you know, and, and probably like a lot of other places, right? I mean, we had, uh, you know, about a third of the church, kind of maybe a third, 25% kind mm-hmm. of, and this isn't for us anymore. Right. So trying to figure out what that means and try to reconnect and get to know the neighborhood again. Good. Yeah. Well, good. Well, before we get into the book, I got one more question to ask you, Travis, because yeah. you work for a very good friend of Good Faith Media at the seminary. President Molly Marshall is one of our dear, dear friends. And we just have to know, I mean, we enjoy being around her and socializing with her, but what's it like to work for a living legend? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, as long as you drink her coffee, I think everything goes pretty well, you know? And, uh, What's uh, in that coffee, Travis? <laughs> I mean, she's great to work with. I mean, she's a fantastic human being. I've just, you know, I've, I've been an admirer of her for years, and um, it's just great to be around her. Just glad, uh, you know, she stops in to Judson mm-hmm. when she can. Good. Um, we're glad that you know, she has a standing invite for anything she ever wants to do. So it's just, it's just great to have her in the Twin Cities. Well, I was excited that uh, that uh, the seminary hired her as the president. I was just just thrilled for her, thrilled for the seminary, and we're trying to figure out a way how we can get up there and do some work uh, with the seminary. And now we got a, a new fantastic. friend at Judson. So yeah, yeah, good. So yeah, yeah, I'd love to have y'all. Yeah. Well, Travis, you wrote this book. The book is entitled "Church on the Move: A Practical Guide for Ministry in the Community," and you gave us a preview of it. Thank you so much for writing this. This was actually outstanding. I was so inspired by the first few chapters wow. before I finished it. I sent it to 
our pastor here in Norman, Oklahoma, because our church just sold their building and is going to be more mobile uh, all over. So, uh, so he's excited really? to, to read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it it, I, it just it hit me personally at a perfect time. So, so let's let's talk a little bit about the contents of the book. Uh, in the introduction, you tell the story about your inspiration to make a change in your life that led you to writing the book. So, tell our listeners about how your daughter inspired and more like challenged you to make a life altering change so that others can have more joy. Yeah. So I, I mean, my daughter at the time was, uh, 13, uh, well, she's 12, just about turned 13. Uh, I preached a sermon, what I thought was a really good, you know, kind of social gospel sermon. Um, and I asked a question in the sermon, you know, what are you willing to sacrifice so that others may experience joy? You know, just a you know, regular question to ask. Uh, I was telling her good night. Um, I leaned over, you know, telling her good night. And she said, Hey dad, I've been thinking about your sermon and I'm just curious, what are you willing to sacrifice so that others may experience joy? And you know, that, that question was an innocent question. I mean, she was just asking it out of you know genuine curiosity, mm-hmm. but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I just felt in that instant, you know, that she saw her uh, father as, you know, all talk and no action, just a complete phony. You know, I just felt ashen in my mouth. And I just said, you know what, sweetheart, I, I don't know. Uh, but I'll, I'll have the answer for you in the morning. So that night, I stayed up all night. I turned the dining room table into like a midlife crisis center and I was full <laughs> of notebooks and, you know, all kind of stuff. And I redid all this research. And then the next morning, I said, okay, you know, we had a family meeting. I said, I, I think I got the answer, Seneca. I am going to, uh, um, I had a car that I, I purchased in New Orleans and it, I didn't know it at the time, but it had flooded during Katrina. The car had, and um, it was having all kinds of problems. And it was in January. It was the middle of what was called a polar vortex here in um, Minneapolis. And the heater went out on it. And I just said, you know, I'm tired of putting money in this car. And so I just came up with a decision. I'm going to sell the car and I'm going to ride my bike to, uh, for my, um, you know, as a pastor. And I'm going to take the bus and walk. And, you know, I told the kids and they're, they're, they just had this look of abject horror <laughs> on their face when I told them. And I said, look. You know, we're not going to sell the van. Uh, this is just my project. And uh, then they had a, a look of relief. And that started this journey. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I am so glad that your daughter asked that question that night. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I rode my bike uh, a couple, about a well, it wasn't quite a year. Well, look. It- Yes. When our oldest son got his driver's license, instead of purchasing a third car, Mitch decided, you know, it was a good idea to get a bike and ride his bike to church, which is fine. We live about a mile away. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Oklahoma, though, you know, is famous for, I don't know if you've heard, yeah. but I don't know if you have ro- sweeping down the plane. Yeah, I don't so, know if you've rode in a 35 mile an hour headwind, but that's tough, man. Right. <laughs> so, so what happened um, to Mitch is he's trying to, you know, be you, I think, are, are doing this with the right motivation. Mitch was just cheap. At the time. So, um, hey, whatever motivation, it doesn't that's right, matter. That's right, that's what right. happened was one of our sweet little ladies at church saw this happening and felt sorry for him. Uh, See, so you don't need to tell the rest of the story. So she told him to come get her car that was in the garage that she never drove, which happened to be a candy apple red Jaguar. <laughs> So, <laughs> for about a year, oh, Mitch was driving around town now in this beautiful old uh, Jaguar. So that also, he's like, I can't do this anymore. So yeah. He eventually uh, gave it back. Yeah. But I enjoyed riding my bike. I really did. <laughs> so Travis, um, 
Once you made this decision to change and to start biking, walking, using public transportation, you then began to encourage others to do the same. And you write, once I started and once Judson Church started venturing out into the community on foot and bike and aboard public transit, we found, unbeknownst to us, God at work. Tell us a little about that. There was just so much that we didn't know about our community and about uh, the people that were, you know, call South Minneapolis home. You know, because when you're in a car, I mean, uh, we own a car still, so I don't think this is an anti-car sure. uh, rant. Yeah. Uh, but when you're in a car, it is a sealed exoskeleton that prevents you from really being in relationship with other people. When you go over 15 miles an hour, you can't read a human face the same way that you can walking or even on a bus or uh, riding a bike. Uh, so you can't see emotion. You really can't. You can see a person, but you can't tell what state they're in. Uh, and when we started, you know, walking and biking and taking public transit around South Minneapolis, we just got to know so many more people. And we got to really we just heard so much more pain. Uh, you know, we think of South Minneapolis um, as a pretty well-to-do, you know, middle class, upper class uh, community. But when you're when we're out in this kind of kind of little bit vulnerable state, uh, you know, we've, we found people, much more people living in poverty, uh, found people experiencing homelessness. We just found a lot of pain uh, from people with mental health uh, issues. And, and that's where we've really found, you know, God at work in this, you know, in these, in these places of pain. Uh, and we found it that there were some things that we needed to readjust how we were, um, you know, the message that we were offering and the kind of the work the church was doing. We found it, uh, you know, pretty transformational in that regard. You know, Travis, this really resonated with me because in the book uh, you mention you're not very far away from where George Floyd uh, was was killed uh, by police. And I remember that summer and there was a time where we were, this was after the shooting of Michael Brown, we started having meetings with law enforcement uh, here in Norman because our chief of police said every town and city is one shooting away from uh, from chaos. And so we started meeting and we were in an open dialogue one time and I asked the chief, you know, what he thought was, um, the, the biggest moment in policing history where things changed. And I was astonished at his answer. Do you know what he said? The one thing that changed Mm. policing forever, the police car. He said, once police started uh, getting into cars and stopped walking their beats, they began to not have a relationship with those communities anymore because it was the the car was a complete barrier to them. He said, it's just, he said, it's fact. He said, we just stopped community policing altogether because now that we were in a car. So when you said that, it was like, man, that you the church has these barriers too that you talk about. In fact, you address some of these barriers that prevent the church from being on the move. And I thought it was fascinating, such as parking lots, resources, and time. You write that parking lots often function as a barrier that creates de-neighboring churches. Now, explain what de-neighboring churches are and why parking lots are such a barrier to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most people uh, love parking lots. You know, um, I happen to serve, I, you know, my, the church we have doesn't have a parking lot. So people think this is parking lot envy. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, if you look at a parking lot, uh, I mean, think about for 1900 years, the church, you know, thrived and flourished without parking lots. Uh, you know, it wasn't until really probably the 1920s that churches started building parking lots. Uh, and when they did start building parking lots, 
more than likely, unless they're, you know, obviously the churches in the suburbs don't count, but if you're in a, um, you know, in an urban setting or in a neighborhood setting, to get a parking lot, you had to take a home away. Mm. Uh, and so when you, you know, when you demolish a home to make way for parking, you're, you're, you're changing and altering the neighborhood in a very significant way. And um, you're doing that for the temporary storage of, a, of an automobile at most six hours a week. You know, we live uh, here in, in Minneapolis, you know, home to some of the largest ELCA Lutheran churches, you know, in the nation, in the world, some people even say. And I drive by at different times uh, during the week just to see how often their parking lot is used. And it is only full, maybe at most, you know, 10% of the time, if not less. So I think if, if churches have this kind of parking lot, I think they have a moral obligation to try to use this parking lot in such ways to um, connect with the neighborhood rather than have it be a barrier. You know, we think of a wall, something vertical. Well, I, I think of the parking lot as a horizontal wall uh, that's separating you uh, from the neighborhood. So that's why I think that's where the de-neighboring mm-hmm. comes from. You've changed the dynamics of the neighborhood, and then you've put this barrier between the church and uh, the neighborhoods as well. You said that some churches are, are really being creative in utilizing and turning those parking lots, those barriers into uh, more friendly environments for neighborhoods, such as local farmer markets uh, on church property and things like that, which I thought was just outstanding. Yeah, and here's one thing people don't realize. A church parking lot is maybe the only place in an urban environment where you can experiment um, outside of zoning laws. Because churches have, in most cities, have this weird categorization of being kind of free from most zoning restrictions. Mm-hmm. The parking lot does. Because, you know, the zoning law only thought you were ever going to do is put a car there. So they didn't really put restrictions on what you could do. So we're finding now uh, throughout the country, uh, some churches are taking tiny homes and placing them in church parking lots and then using the church facilities such as their, you know, the restrooms, uh, kitchens and kind of public spaces to make almost a, you know, a new community wow. uh, in a church parking lot, which I find absolutely amazing uh, as Gosh. something that churches could re-neighborhood uh, with their church parking lot. And they're only giving up three or four spots to do this. Sure. Uh, you know, they're not giving up 40 parking spots. Uh, it's amazing what you can do in just a small footprint. <laughs> Travis, I, I love what, just the idea of this book, when Mitch sent it to me, I thought this is so strange. You know, you're giving up <laughs> giving up your car. You know, we think of when we're trying to do um, unto others, we think of giving, you know, our resources in other ways. Um, but when I started reading, I was like, it, it was such a duh moment, honestly, because Mitch and I have this dream of someday living without a car. We want to be in, in a walkable neighborhood or a walkable city. Um, we love being out um and about without being in our car. Um, I would kind of push back on one thing that you said about being in a car and not being able to read human emotion. I will tell you, you can read human emotion (laughs) in a car on the highway. It's just not necessarily. Oh, positive. The right one. But but in in talking about this, seeing face-to-face and interaction, I, I thought this is just another way in which the car has provided a barrier to us seeing each other and not othering one another. And then when you're, like you said, you're forced to engage face to face with people, you are forced to become more trusting of one another and you see the, 
you see the joys and the sorrows and what, what people have going on in their life. And I, I just, I, I love this concept. I love, um, kind of the, I don't know, the, the way that you reframed this, such an odd issue, but making so much sense of another way. And like Mitch was saying about police officers, you know, when we're walking the neighborhoods, we know each other and that's so important to doing, um, ministry. So I thank you for this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of my favorite uh, moments in my neighborhood was uh, we used to have 175 pound Great Dane. And so I'd take her oh. for walks in the the neighborhood and literally hand to God, cars would stop, roll down their window and say, oh my gosh, what is that? <laughs> but it was a way to interact and, and talk. And so, yeah, uh, I thought it was great. We started a new metric. Uh, at Judson, you know, not how many people are online in a worship service or in person, but how many dogs did you meet this week? Oh, wow. You know, it's just a, it's just a way of like, you're one-on-one with someone. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a Barton buddy or these, it's a, it's an owner and a dog. Mm -hmm. I don't know which is which. So I I just see them all together (laughs) and I just, I just say collectively, Hey, Bart, Hey buddy. And they both respond. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's some way of just, you know, how are you meeting people? Right. Uh, and I just think when you're, when you're walking the neighborhood, when you're on your bike, when you're, even when you're just waiting for the bus, you just, you, you open yourself up to being around people in a different way. And, uh, you know, small conversations can, can happen. Yeah. So I need to ask you a question before Mitch takes back over. So have you <laughs> learned your lesson about, um, preaching and your children, because I will say that this is one thing that would keep me from ever stepping in this, um, behind a pulpit or, or in a a situation like this is because your kids and others, they'll call you on what you're expecting (laughs) others to do. So I, I'm, I'm hoping you've learned your lesson. (laughs) Well, uh, I, I think the one lesson was people actually listen, you know, that was, that was, uh, that's right. my kids too. So yeah, yeah. They, they call me out on several things. They always try to find the inconsistencies. Well, at this point, let me quote my old crotchety neighbor when I was a kid growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, <laughs> you damn kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I have another part of this book that I really enjoyed, and we're not going to, we can't work through it all because the whole goal is to get people to buy the book and you need to go buy it right yeah, yeah, now exactly. after you uh, sign off this podcast. It is Church on the Move, a practical guide for ministry in the community. But one part of the book that I really enjoyed, because there are some questions and, and discussions at the end of, of each chapter, but there's also recipes Tell us about these recipes, man, because they were, fa- I love the stories behind them. And I thought that was, it's a great touch. Well, you know, I, I'm just, I, I never could figure out, you know, you read all these, um, you're part of a church community and food is so important. Uh, and then, you you know, you read throughout the gospel stories, especially food is so important. And yet you read a theology book or a church book and it never mentions food mm. or it never has never has recipes or, you know, think of all the thousands of church cookbooks that have been printed throughout the you know, last century. Yeah. Uh, why aren't there more? I just thought, well, we need to have more recipes. Right? I you know, loved have- that part yeah. of the book when I was scrolling through. And I will tell you when my oldest son went to college, that's one of the things I did for him as I, um, compiled a cookbook for him and I hand wrote recipes cause it's hard to find handwritten recipes anymore. Um, of, of his favorite meals. But then I also asked friends and family to, you know, 
submit a recipe and I compiled it so that he could have that. But on every recipe, I always wrote that the last ingredient was love. And that's kind of a, a, a thing in our family is, you know, when they say something isn't as good as mom's, I always say, well, they didn't clearly add the love. You know, that's, that's what you do. So the fact that you incorporated recipes into this, I thought was such a great addition. I, I loved reading those. I love reading stories. That's one thing I put in my son's book was the story behind the recipe where we got it, who liked it and, and all this. Um, and so that was just, it was such a fun uh, thing to see that you did as well. And I was scared that the publisher wasn't going to put it in, you know, oh, yeah. and they were like, look, it's only eight pages. Which of course we can put in. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's fantastic. Well, Reverend Travis Norvell, thank you so much for being with us today on Good Faith Weekly. The book is entitled Church on the Move, a practical guide for ministry in the community, and you can purchase it anywhere you purchase your books. And so make certain after you, uh, you uh, hit stop on this podcast today, uh, go and buy the book because it, it's really, really good and very, very practical. Well, Travis, before we let you go, we've got one last question that we ask every one of our guests and Missy has the honor of asking it. So Missy, take it away. Travis, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. In light of what we've discussed today and your work, what is your more to tell? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say say thanks to Mitch and Missy and thanks for Good Faith Media. I love the stuff you all do and um, just appreciate your ministry in this aspect. Uh, my one more thing to tell would be uh, start where you are. You know, don't think that you got to sell your car or, you know, you're going to just start riding a bus. Just think of, look at all the trips that you take. What is, where is one mile that you could walk to or where's one mile you could take the bus or ride your bike, start small and then know for sure that uh, there's this minister in Minneapolis that's praying for you to be able to do these uh, small steps towards uh, social justice and uh, expanding your heart. That's great. Travis, thank you so much for your time and your ministry and your wisdom. It's been a joy. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you all so much. Thanks, Travis. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.